welcome to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iProperty Radio or indeed email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined by John Morn, um, a man of many hats, social entrepreneur, chair of Livable Limerick and founding member of We Want Our Boat campaign. John, I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. You're very welcome. No, thank you very much for having me. I'm sure we'll have a great conversation. Um, John, you you know, I, I mentioned in advance when we're introducing our guests, it's normally very straightforward. They have a title, we call it out, and that's that. As mentioned, you do wear many hats. So um, obviously Chair of Livable Limerick, that's really what we want to focus on today. But maybe just to give our listeners a sense of, of your background, you know, how do you find yourself wearing all these hats? Well, there's a, there's a word on my, I think it's on my Twitter um, profile, which is a multi-potentialite, right? Uh, which is, is probably best explained by we've all done it when we meet young kids and we say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we kind of expect that there's a single answer to that. And, and uh, multi-potentialite hates that question because they can't actually work out what they want to be. They, they find that so many different things in the world are interesting to do. And they tend to sort of, you know, want to do it all almost. And so well, I've been really lucky in the way I went through life in my career. I mean, I both couldn't decide which country I wanted to live in. So I lived in the US, I lived here, I've lived in France, I was in Sydney, um, even in Ireland, what city I wanted to live in. And then you've got Dublin behind you. And I spent a lot of time in Dublin and really enjoyed it, but ultimately wanted to come back home to Limerick. Um, and then in terms of work, find myself really, I suppose the, the, the connecting dots all the time is that it's something that I find that I'm really passionate about. It tends to be a little bit disruptive um, or changing of the status quo and has tended to now, if you remember those circles we used to draw when we were in, 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 in sort of school, the, it's that intersection of, of probably, you know, public service, financial services and sort of banking and the built environment. And when I kind of end up in the middle of all of those three, I tend to find myself Sort of you're very close to a, a, an area that really excites me and dad was a builder i mean and i grew up sort of you know helping him in the summers and, and we grew up on a farm and so equally he did lots of different things and i suppose it, the, the the apple doesn't fall far from the tree but now i find myself back doing building and things like that so if i told him i would never do when he was alive you know so it's kind of interesting how you end up coming full circle you know, it, it, well you're right it is interesting but also we get to that stage where you start to, to um you know, the things that maybe you questioned about your parents, then suddenly you find yourself absolutely aligning one of the things that maybe you thought you'd never do. The the, the intersection there of financial services and built environment, that makes absolute sense. Um, you know, there, so clearly there's been a social motivator as well. Um, you know, <clears throat> the, the parts that I find difficult to reconcile are the entrepreneurial side and public service and particularly public sector, because you know, again, they're almost opposing ends. I was going to say opposite ends of the scale, but I think opposing ends of the scale is probably quite accurate as well. So how do you marry the entrepreneurial side trying to make an impact in public service? Yeah, um, I suppose every people are people, right? So, I mean, you know, you have to sort of a, a, a decide what environment you're in. I mean, there is a sort of a concept of almost a public sector entrepreneur as well who is the person that will try out new things. And, and we've had some great ones in our history. I mean, you know, the people that decided to create Shannon Airport, the, you know, the people that tried lower tax rates or, you know, so many different parts of, 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 of the way Ireland has developed have been by people trying something different um, so as to set us apart in, 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 a, in, a, in a global world. And I, I think that, a lot of people at work and even they're attracted to public sector. It's just the first thing that they don't realize until you really are in the public sector, which is for me, the big difference between that and, and working purely in the private sector environment is that decisions you make really impact on so many people. You know, what, what policy you implement, how it operates across the country versus in one part or the other. These are all decisions that no private sector, I mean, unless you're talking about Amazon and Google or whatever, but your average sort of, you know, company 
will help its customers. It will do that, but it's not dealing with the thousands or the hundreds of thousands or even the millions of people impacted by by decisions. And the decisions tend to be very large, and so they, they tend to have a big impact. I do think that the people that want to be entrepreneurial in the public sector, um, and there are many of them, and there are probably just as many who are afraid to be. Um, I, I think that one of the biggest issues, and I spoke about this before a number of times, is the being entrepreneurial is about taking risks. And if you take risks in a company, we've gotten better, obviously, in Ireland. I mean, before, if you went bankrupt, that was it. You were sent to purgatory and never left to come out, right? Uh, and we've understood that, no, actually, the best entrepreneurs probably fail once or twice and learn from their mistakes and move on. Um, I'm not sure that we tolerate mistakes by our public sector. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of public hangings of people that we think have made mistakes or commissions about decisions that were made at a time on the fly. And I think that has embedded in our system as sort of a fear factor, which is not helpful. Um, and it means that you have to be particularly brave to take the kind of the slightly riskier choice rather than the own, because with hindsight, there'll be some politician or there'll be some media or there'll be some you know, a group of people who would say, oh, but you shouldn't have done that. And not realize that that there is, of course, never a black and white answer. There's a kind of a whole load of different things flying around at the same time. And either you can defer the decision or you can make it what might be actually a very brave decision at the time. Uh, and one of the things often forgotten about is that deciding today to put off the decision to tomorrow is actually a decision. Deferral or saying no is actually equal as much a decision as deciding to do something. And, and I worry still that, that, that a lot of people that are in public sector are, you know, because of the nature of our system, um, you know, always going to be fearful of that. I mean, I've seen a deterioration in the Oireachtas, for example, about the way in which politicians treat people who aren't in the chamber. You know, using privilege to call out things, to say things about people when they don't have the right to respond, um, and and that's just contributing to this. I mean, so I don't, I wouldn't just say it's you know entrepreneurs are outside and, and the public sector is not. I think there are a lot of people who would love to be entrepreneurial in the public sector as well. Well, I'm not sure our system actually uh, protects them as much as it should. That's a really interesting point on failure because um, we see across the business side, uh, particularly on the innovation and the tech innovation side, uh, it's something that Ireland has definitely lagged other countries. You know, we see in America that, uh, or in, and in other countries that failure is seen as a rite of passage and it's seen as part of your experience that forms the person that you grow in to be. Whereas in Ireland, we always had this awful thing that uh, failure is almost contagious. So for example, only in very recent weeks, I had a, a, a startup founder talk to me about how, you know, when he was running a, a, a multi-million euro property business, you know, the friends he thought he had, the lifestyle he thought he had, once that fell away and once his business failed, he realized that his entire circle left because people were afraid to almost be associated with him or his business. You know, we, we definitely had that fear is, is uh, contagious. But in the private sector and in the certainly in the innovation side, that's starting to shift over the last two decades. It hasn't started to shift in the public sector why is that? And do you think we can overcome this, this culture? We almost need to separate the public sector from the control of publicly elected representatives because we know that they're on a, a re-election cycle almost continuously. So how do you how do you start to create that shift that uh, a level of failure, uh, you know, learned failure is almost OK if we're taking risks and innovation provided they're calculated risks? to move us forward. How do yeah. you start to change that? I, I guess they go both hand. I mean, you're very involved in communication, so I'm sure you'll have even more, more abused, more considered abused than, than I do, right? But for the time that I was at the Department of Finance, and I mean, it was an incredibly interesting time, obviously, but stressful time. I mean, we were basically a country on the edge of bankruptcy, right? Um, and, and forced to make decisions which is the great thing about a crisis, actually, and as in ever waste a crisis, is that we probably didn't have as much time as we would have loved to 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 be able to consider everything. Things had to be made, decisions made more on the fly and whatever. But what we did try and do, and I hope people appreciated that at the time, was we tried to be as transparent as possible 
about what we were doing within within reason. I mean, there was one time I remember being criticized by a very senior female politician, um, you know, at the moment in, in Dal Aaron, because I was not kind of, you know, I should have been on the plane to go to Spain the following day to try and negotiate a better deal for Europe and stuff like that. Well, we had been there. In fact, we had a team there, but I couldn't actually say that at the time. Um, but it was obvious a week later because we were at that point able to have it kind of, you know, collapsed Anglo-Irish um, or IBRC as it was and the promissory note deal and, and securing it. But but the transparency, I think, is important because I think the community at large, perhaps um, it's fairer to say, understand stuff better than maybe we think they they, they do. And, and it, but you have to explain things to them. They have to understand the compromises and what and the backdrop against it. There, there has been a, 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 a very expensive commission um, that was asked for by, by you know, members of, of, of Dahl Aaron um, on, into a site surf transaction. And, and the judge that has looked at that has spent maybe five years, you know, going through all the details, interviewing people to decide whether it was the right decision at the time. You know, and yet the people are making that decision had maybe weeks or days to actually make that decision. So that's not a fair comparison. And he may find that there are different ways to do it. More importantly, speaking specifically, that is something that I was exposed to in advance of going into a one hour meeting with the chair and the CEO of the bank that was actually itself almost one step removed from that. And even though I had left public service, I was required to actually produce a whole statement about this. I was going to have to do an affidavit. I was maybe going to have to go in and defend myself. And what was great about the transparency I mentioned is that I pointed out using the documents that we had produced at the time, because we had an annual report from the Department of Finance, that we had produced an annual report of 86 or 90 pages about what we were doing that year in which IBRC, which was liquidated and the promissory note deal done, which was a very, very large transaction, was only two pages. So in the context of everything we were doing at the time, IBRC itself was only two pages. And SiteServe was a very small transaction being done by a board of a bank miles away from the department. And we had some concerns and we tried to raise those concerns. But my, what I tried to explain was that had I focused as much time on that particular transaction in order to avoid being in a commission of inquiry where there to be one in the future, I wouldn't have been doing my job. Because the, because the problems that we were actually dealing with were so much larger than this 30 million euro transaction or whatever it was. You know, we were dealing with a state on bankruptcy. We were dealing with trying to save billions on, on the cost of funding for the debt. We were setting up a strategic investment fund for Ireland. We were trying to find ways to get people back from an unemployment rate of 300,000 to 100,000. If the section of the Department of Finance had spent four years looking at just whether or not that transaction was one we should have or should not have done, it would have been a gross you know, dereliction of my duty. And, and yet we are able to, well, this wouldn't happen in a private company. I mean, we wouldn't drag a CEO or the team of a private company of the scale of the state of Ireland through that kind of an investigation. And so that problem means that while you have to be sure that things are done well, and we have systems there, we have auditors of general and everything else, we also have to trust those systems a little bit more to allow people to be able to do that, or at least listen when people say, these are the big problems that we are dealing with. Now, the flip side of that is the transparency. And so I am certainly, you know, not as sure that since the time of the Troika that the government have been as transparent, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm a big fan of the decision that the members of NEFIT shouldn't speak to the public and should be controlled by the government, you know, because I think it's important that we all understand the context of everything. Yeah. And right. actually, John, before before we jump up, I mean, in terms of the the decisions going back kind of 12 and 13 years, um, there's a whole show in that. That's something I'd love to get into another day. And I know I, I almost feel bad kind of changing the topic here because I know there's going to be people listening in who absolutely want to hear more about that, because so much of that is still a point of of frustration that's very much just below the surface for people but I think you've positioned that really well as in that was how to act in a moment of crisis and undoubtedly that was a time of crisis financial crisis now fast forward a decade and a bit 
And we find ourselves in a crisis that is surely, surely to the scale of that in terms of our housing crisis. And yet we're making the same mistakes um, in terms of not taking action, perhaps, um, or, or, you know, the, the criticism that you point out there, uh, what what ought not to have been done, we seem to be doing here, we're deliberating. And you rightly point out, failing to make a decision is making a decision. And yet for our housing crisis, that seems to be where we're at at the moment. So without without kind of changing topic entirely, but bringing it to the property side now, kind of a, a decade later, how do we take the learnings and apply that so we're not stuck in this deeply entrenched crisis, which we seem to be at the moment? And it feels like such a circular argument, no matter what we talk about, it all comes back to supply, uh, a, a lack of supply. And yet at its simplest level, it seems like that should be a solvable problem but we're stuck in crisis mode. Yeah, well, what worries me more about the moment as I think we're also stuck in a very almost unhealthy debate where it's almost too partisan, right? I mean, it everyone's looking for somebody to blame as to why the crisis has occurred and without realizing that actually what we really want is we want everything working together. Um, you know, there is no one silver bullet to this. There are aspects of the private sector that are important, but equally there are very important deliverables by the public sector that are necessary. There are European state aid rules, there are European fiscal rules that we have to operate within. And, but the context of the decisions is now very different. So the first, I think, fear I have is that things that were the right decisions 10 or 12 years ago, when there was 80,000 extra houses in the country, are not the, it's not the same decisions that we should be making now. You know, and I think I do see some sort of local authorities and others pulling out things that they wanted to do in 2006 and seven and eight that didn't get done because the crisis hit and saying, well, that's what we should be doing now. But actually the world has moved on and we need to be doing and approaching life very differently and learning from the mistakes actually of the Celtic Tiger and probably trying to do better this time. Um, the, the other thing I think that I'm probably missing from our time at the in the department and the Troika experience helped this, but it was actually being done anyway, right? Um, I mean, full credit to people like, you know, Brian, um, and when he was Minister for Finance in the in the in the bailout period, he had set in motion a lot of things that needed to happen. And I joined obviously in, in, in 2011. And the government that we had, sort of the coalition of, of Labour and, and Fine Gael, were implementing in many ways things that had gone before. But what we absolutely insisted on was that we would have whatever it was, four or ten items, which we felt were the most important items and had to be delivered. And they we policed so rigorously to make sure that we didn't miss a deadline. And I think the importance of that is that we moved very quickly from a feeling of almost fatalism that we were never going to get out of the problem at the end of 2010, a sense that nobody knew where we were going or whatever else. In the context of the decisions that we were making, particularly in the banking sector, which was at the time in major trouble and dragging down the state with it, by setting a path, which was a multi-year path of three years with, with the milestones all the way out, it meant that very quickly, and in fact, much quicker than you expect, people get confidence in delivery. And the only way that comes is by absolutely making sure never to miss a deadline. Mm -hmm. um, and, and on the important stuff, I mean, I'm not talking about little stuff that moves, but actually for every little one that moves, you should really advance another one, right? I mean, that's how you like to see things working with proper, proper project management so that at the end of the year, the sum of everything done is as much as you expected to get done. It may have changed a little bit along the way. Um, I'm still not sure, and I have actually said this, I suppose, publicly, whether in the context of developing the housing for all strategy, that we have tied the amount of delivery that we expect to make to what we think we can deliver with a, le with a level of safety, as opposed to what we actually need to deliver. Which so might you, be do, you think, do you think it was overly conservative? Yeah, so I, I, 
I had at the time mentioned analysis that the central bank did and that and others like Ronan Lyons and others did, which suggested that Ireland may need, you know, 45 to 50,000 homes every year. And if that's right, and I'm not able to second guess the central bank, nor indeed the Department of Housing, but the Department of Housing have sort of said it's only 30 something houses that we need every year, right? The two are not the same. Right. If 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 we need fifty thousand, let's just assume that for the moment, and we are only delivering thirty-three thousand, what will happen is that the people with the most money will get housing. The people with the least amount of money, in some respects, will have housing provided for them by the state, and the other third, which is nearly twenty thousand people or seventy thousand, won't be able to buy, or won't be able to rent. Uh-huh. And the impact of them being not managed in this process is that that itself will rise the value or the cost let me say of housing as opposed to the value it will rise the cost of all the housing for everybody so the delivery by the state will now be too expensive the purchases by the people who probably have the money to do so anyway so we're not going to cry too much for them will actually um also be over expensive for the value that you get when you buy in Ireland. And so you don't solve the problem. And it reminds me of when we were trying to capitalize the banks back in 2011. There wasn't a perfect answer as to how much capital we thought the banks needed because lots of things would move, interest rates could move, the recovery of the economy. But we did a huge amount of analysis to prove that the value, the the validity of the number we came up with, which was 24 billion, now, certainly a lot of people in my old department at the time I was at the central bank would have preferred us to have come up with 10 million or 10 billion for that number because the state was in real trouble. And indeed, maybe the ECB and others who were owed a lot of money by the banks would have preferred 35 billion. But but because we picked a number that was backed up by a lot of analysis, which we shared with the public and with analysts across the world, the, de- the difference was that within a matter of weeks, there was faith in the Irish banking system again, mm-hmm. because that number was actually believed by everybody. If the number in the housing for all strategy was right, then I would have expected, you, I mean, I know you have a lot of listeners who are in the property market, so they probably won't like to hear this, but I would have expected the value of Irish houses to have gone down. Because it, and I wouldn't expect them to be able to deliver 50,000 homes on the, on the first week. But, but the impact of everybody knowing that enough houses were going to be produced, that we were going to train enough people to build them, that we were going to find the funding to do them, that the state was going to do enough in social housing, in affordable housing, would have meant that because in the, in the short term, like four, five, six years out, people would have expected almost a surplus of supply then that would have caused the value of all of those apartments that people buy as an investment or all those homes to drop because the rent would go down in a number of years' time. And so you would actually get an immediate drop in prices today because those competitors to first-time buyers and and owner-occupiers who are investors would actually hold all of them. I don't think it's worked as much. And, And I didn't see that happen. So I worry now, not having the skills to be able to figure it out myself, that actually the people who actually do understand the skills, the large investment funds, you know, others know that we are still not producing enough homes in the right places to meet our supply. And, and there's a big fallacy, sorry, I just, it's, I know it's complicated, but just to say yeah. is that when you add supply into a market, everybody thinks that that should mean that prices go down. But that's not the case necessarily. If the amount of supply you are adding is not on something as critical as a home for people, right? If the supply that you're adding is not enough to meet all the demand, then what happens is the people with the most money and maybe more money than the value intrinsically of the house or home, they can still overpay for that. So in fact, prices can go up as more supply is added. This was the very same thing that happened in the last crisis. We produced an awful lot of extra housing in Ireland. But what happened was we weren't, we created an artificial demand number as well. So all these investors appeared, you know, we were all sort of, you know, no probably many of these people who decided to buy a second apartment or a third apartment or a second home. 
they all appeared to buy extra homes and created this extra demand, which meant the prices kept going up and up. So it's it's absolutely essential that you need supply to bring prices down, but it's not necessarily the case that adding some more supply will bring prices down. You have to get enough into the market at the right level as well. There's no point in producing lots of very, very expensive apartments in Dublin that people can't afford. That won't deal with the supply issue in the middle. But there, there's so many mixed messages around that. So, for example, um, you, you might have seen the EU report that came out the, um, only in the last two weeks that suggested Irish property prices were undervalued by um, somewhere in the region of 17%. Um, and yet you're talking about the people who ought to be able to judge the value um, and in terms of judge the market in terms of more accurate supply and demand, the, the investment funds, you know, the rhetoric over the past week has has certainly been that there is a confidence being lost in Ireland due to inconsistencies across policymaking, you know, a lack of consistency, a lack of certainty, which the market needs. Do you think that's essentially scaremongering or is that a reality? Well, it could be both. I, I don't know, right? I mean, I've not had that direct conversation with any of those. What I do know is that in order to build all the houses that we need in Ireland, right? Remember, we have a massively growing population. So we have another million people to house in the island. I mean, you know, I know we want to talk about Limerick in, in a minute as well, but it's quite easier to understand it in the context of a smaller city, mm-hmm. okay, in the, in the country at large, right? So the population of Limerick is expected to go up by 50,000 people on top of the existing 100,000, okay? That's a population growth that Limerick has not seen for well, sir, I was going to say a century, if not more, right? Um, and yet that five, that 50,000 people is only 5% of the growth of the population in the entire country. And Limerick is the third largest city at the moment. So if actually Limerick was successful about doing this, it might find that a 10% of the population growth decide to live in Limerick, which means Limerick goes not from 100 to 150, but actually from 100 to 200,000. That means that Limerick needs to double in size. So for every chicken hut that we have in Limerick, we're going to need two chicken huts, right? Arguably for Dolman Park, which is a certain size, you know, to deal with the population of Limerick at the moment, we should maybe need a Dolman Park that's double the size. The railway station, if it's not, if it's at capacity, needs to be doubled, the buses, et cetera. And then you get the housing that goes with that, right? And this is a scale of growth that I don't think we have a good understanding of in, in Ireland. And I think Dublin has kind of had that, but has tended not to plan it as much, right? Now, a fund that knew that Limerick would never supply enough houses to meet the people that want to live in Limerick would know that rents are always going to be very high in Limerick, okay? A fund that thinks that we are going to produce enough housing in Limerick for that population, will know that they get a fair return comparable to what they get in any other country in the world. And they would therefore be able to operate here to do that. But what they can't do is to not be sure in making the decisions about allocating capital, whether there'll be a panic in Limerick and we'll just cap rents all the time at whatever they are today so they won't even grow with inflation, or maybe we won't build enough apartments or they won't have the services or whatever. So it's the uncertainty that is allied to that will mean that in effect, we will be we will not have enough capital to grow Limerick because there aren't enough savings in Limerick right. to give mortgages to all the people who need to buy those homes in order for the builders to be able to sell those homes. And there aren't even deposits in the banks to actually pay for these. So we do need international capital. Dublin South FM. In the last maybe two to three months, um, I interviewed one of the estate agents down in Limerick and she explained that actually investors are still able to purchase apartments in Limerick below the cost of of building new apartments. So actually, how do you reconcile that then? Because we know that uh, Limerick and Waterford of all the regional cities have the lowest rent. Um, even now. Uh, and in fact, one of the, the Chamber of Commerce um, issued a report with Indicon in recent months that suggested there was a lack of investment coming into Limerick, that all of the placemaking initiatives were essentially coming from the public sector, that they weren't being matched by private investment. 
So well, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, so right. what's what's the next step? And I actually, I, I think it's good that we focus on Limerick and kind of make it make it um, to try understand what's going on here because you know we saw in terms of the international funds coming in for the built around or the the wider PRS sector, um, that money tended to be Dublin and then uh, gradually kind of moving to Cork, but it hasn't spread out across the other regional cities. Yeah. So there's there's a, a number of different things that, that are at play there, right? So uh, you've heard me, I mean, in numerous times, it's particularly probably since I left Dublin. So I am the game tip keeper turned poacher, right? Um, but it became very obvious to me when I moved back to Limerick, just how Dublin centric our thought process is, our decision making is and everything else. And that's not good for the country, right? Um, and even though I love Limerick and I'm delighted to, to be back here, there's still a compromise to living in Limerick because so much happens in Dublin. Mm-hmm. So much our health system is in Dublin, so much our cultural systems. I mean, why are we having the All-Ireland in Croke Park? We could still be having in Thurles, right? But we have allowed Dublin to, to, to do all this because we, in effect, inherited the, one of the most centralised forms of government when we took over the British form of government uh, into Ireland. So, you know, it's a bit perhaps polit- you know, controversial to say it, but, you know, we took on the government system that was built for an empire where they didn't trust the colonies, you know, to make their own decisions. And we kind of made that our own government system. And almost Dublin became our kind of head of the empire. And then poor Limerick and Cork and others were, were, were treated a bit like colonies. They were, were, we took power away from them, we took money away from them, local decision-making, was was reduced and reduced and reduced to the point where now you can't move a bus stop in Limerick unless you get a decision out of a Dublin office. Yeah, I, right. well, and, and this kind of links us back to one of the campaigns I mentioned that you're a founding member of, which is the We Want Our Vote campaign, because actually the rest of the country has been looking at Limerick and its campaign for a, a directly elected mayor. And and now I it I, I saw there just in the last few days on Twitter there's there's a, a surface you know anger is surfacing now that people have used their voice and their voice hasn't been listened to so what what where is the campaign at the moment Yeah so so I mean uh, for people who aren't following this debate right I mean t- t- nearly three years ago now um, as part of the local elections um, three years ago. And this comes up every decade, right, in Ireland. There's always an effort to see, should we have, like, directly elected mayors and places and stuff like that. So in the year 2000, we thought this was a good idea. We said we'd do it. You know, the legislation got drafted, then it got shelved and put away because somebody decided it wasn't a good idea anymore. And so I actually suspect it was a bit like the Scottish independence vote. Um, people said, oh, let's try Cork, Limerick and, and Waterford out and see if they want the directly elected mayor, but we hope they won't want it. Right. I mean, you know, so and then we can put it away for another 10 or 15 years. Right. Um, And as we know, Limerick, because Limerick knows that it can do much better uh, and that this current system is not working for it. Limerick actually said we want to be like other European cities. We want the people of Limerick to decide who is the mayor. We want the mayor to be there for a number of years, not just changing every year, so that they can understand the problems and actually deliver the solutions to some of the problems that are multi-annual ones. And more importantly, they were promised that this mayor would be a person who would have democratic, obviously, mandates, but would have significant extra powers and significant extra funding over and above what was currently the position of the mayor today. So they would be able to change that bus stop um, by having powers with respect to transport. How important is it that this is that this is or is not a political office? Well, I, I think it's important that it's political for the for the fact, I know we talked about transparency and decision making and everything else earlier, right? I, I think there's a huge difference between somebody who is accountable to the people by a direct vote and somebody who is not. And I think it's really important that that person be you know, elected by the people to make the decisions for, for, the, for that community, right? For Limerick, it's particularly important for the following number of, of, of reasons. The electorate in Limerick is roughly speaking 50% in the city, 50% in the county. 
So you can't have a mayor who just wants to look after the county. You can't have a mayor who just wants to look after the city. They need to find a way to blend the needs of the residents of the city together with the people in the county that travel to work maybe in the city or come in um, for shopping or whatever else. And, and therefore, you get to a really important dynamic that we don't have in Irish politics. Right? You, if you think about it, the way we work at the moment, we have a a Gunaractus that's made up of, of people who've been elected in three and four-seater and maybe five-seater constituencies. Um, even when we get to have a government, it is a blend of different parties now in our system, right? So, so actually nobody represents the majority. And the only compromising to get to a majority position that has to happen is around the program for government when some of the parties go in, but they actually really can ignore the other 40% if they wanted to, right? In, in the context of, a, of an election where you need to get 51%, in order to do that, the campaign has to move, the manifestos have to move into a position that is much more a compromise, because everything is a compromise around, around what the community wants. Now, of course, Dublin may not want Limerick doing that. And that's where we have to grow up as, as, as a country and recognize that if the people of Limerick were to decide that they wanted to spend all the cash that they would have for the next 10 years on getting housing solved and maybe spend more money on housing than on transport or on health or whatever else it might be, we have to trust local government to be able to make those decisions. And we're not very good at doing that because nor are the British government either, but the German governments, the Nordic governments, all have large amounts of power. Like I'll give you an example of that, right? In, in Denmark and Ireland are roughly the same size, right? In, in broad terms. 7% um, of all government funding in Ireland is spent effectively through local authorities, okay? So 93% of it effectively is going to be spent by the ministers or cabinet deciding what projects they want to fund or don't want to fund. In Denmark, over 60%, I think it's closer to 66% of all government spending is actually dispersed through the local government system. So that the decisions about what is important are made by people who are much closer to the people and in fact living in the same communities as the, as the people that they're serving. And that's a huge difference for me. And, and that's why I think that, that in the context, and this is where I suppose we're so um, strong on the, the need for this to be done in Dublin for Limerick, because we're waiting nearly three years now. We still haven't seen the legislation. Peter Burke, I know, is working hard on it, but I suspect that there are forces trying to, 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 to stop it, or just there are other priorities. And this is what happens with places like Limerick and Cork and Walford, is there are other priorities in the day of the Taoiseach or the day of the Minister for Housing or Transport. So the bus stop in Limerick is not a priority. But that, that, that again actually feeds into the argument for the need for this. Um, you know, I'm actually fascinated by that figure of 93% versus 7% um, decisions being made locally. So, I, and I'm trying to think, how would we reconcile that in the context of the state planning that we do, whether it's uh, the National Development Plan or, you know, Ireland 2040, you know, how do we, how do we reconcile those um, you know, if we were to if we were to look and put more control in terms of education, because we know that that certain counties have been absolutely left behind in terms of healthcare, education, and and other really big key societal issues. Um, but John, it just it, it strikes me that at least on four or five occasions in this interview so far, you've spoken about trust and I would suggest that maybe that's one of the largest problems that for some reason, the state doesn't seem to trust its people, despite the fact that it is a democracy. There doesn't seem to be the trust in the community to be able to make decisions and to be able to understand the balance of competing interests and budgets and priorities. You know, where, where is this coming from? Yeah, I, I, I'm listening to a book recently um, on, on the difference between small organisation and big organisation. Right. And I think that there's some lessons there for us in Ireland. Right. Um, the concept of small organization tends to sort of suit a political system where 
you almost try and work out the, the U.S. presidential election is a, is a perfect example of this, right? Um, you focus on what will get you a small percentage of votes in the swing states, and you kind of ignore everybody else, right? So you don't need to have an all-encompassing vision for America that attracts everyone because you're actually trying to pick up little bits of votes along the way. And I think in Ireland, the way our political system tends to work, and this is why I think this 50% to me is so important with the directly elected mayor, we tend to sort of be happy to deal with managing small numbers of people so as not to lose their votes. If you know what I mean. So whether it's we're talking property right here. So whether it's yeah. all the people in a neighborhood complaining because there's new housing going to go into their neighborhood or there'll be extra traffic on the road. That's hugely important in our political system because there are 100 votes or 200 votes. And then there's a deputy who actually is a, a, a member of the national parliament, but really dealing with what is a local issue. And by the time it gets to somebody who can actually referee the compromise, all of the government departments, maybe the school is supposed to be there or the transport department or the housing department, they all get refereed by the Taoiseach, essentially yeah. in all areas, irrespective of how local that issue is. That if you want to do kind of what I call the big organization idea, then what you do is you have to come up with an umbrella vision, an umbrella manifesto, which actually has an understanding that doesn't allow for nimbyism because actually everybody has kids that they want to find new homes for. They have friends who are coming in to work in their, you know, moving to Ireland or working in their company or whatever else. So they understand the need for more housing and that that comes with some compromises. But somebody who has got to do an election where they have to get 50 something percent, I think actually needs to be able to, to appeal to a much broader group. And I would say that that's why if you think about some of our great presidents that we've had, you know, uh, starting particularly with Mary Robinson and then Mary McAleese and, and the current incumbent, they know and speak to the majority of the people and they speak in broader terms and actually don't have to, in some ways, pander to these smaller percentages of, of voters. And therefore, they're able to have a more appealing message for all of us as to how we move forward. And I think that's, yeah. that's so I would love that arbitrator, for example, of the decision between the, the housing development or the height of it or the overlooking or the trees or the bus or whatever it is, all of which are local issues to be local, which is why yeah. this mayoral position is so important in terms of placemaking and allowing this to move forward without being stuck. And there's no point in fighting all these things in court cases. Yeah, but you, you've touched you've touched on something so important as well. At the moment, our current system really amplifies the loud the loud minority of people, and yet the majority of people stay silent. So actually, we're not even capturing. You know, when we're capturing the loud voices, we're not even capturing the majority. We're actually capturing the most motivated to speak up. And that I, I think that's been such a weakness as well. So, I mean, and when you put it in kind of a placemaking context here, you know, when you talk about kind of the approaches of our presidents, you know, that's an ideological approach that I think maybe at a local level seems difficult to to know how to reach out. To, to people, particularly if you're coming from a political party, that you have a base. Whereas actually, I think for placemaking, when you're talking to the community, it needs to be so much broader. And the reality is the technology exists to do this. You know, we should be able to capture the views of people living in an apartment block while they're sitting on their sofa uh, in their slipper socks um, with their smartphone in their hand. We should be able to capture what they think of something the same way we capture it from well, the same people that turn up to town hall events. But the point being that and maybe I haven't fully, you know, I'm sure there'll be experts on the on tomorrow now right, ringing into saying that I'm totally mad and it's all crazy. But 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 I think the point is that because we've now moved to a position where our political parties are 20, 30 percent maximum of support, they are designing their system and their thought process around making sure that they don't lose that support. Mm -hmm. They might increase by four or five percent. You know, maybe some one or two of them think that they can get to 50 percent. But very few of them are actually really trying to develop something that is able to and needs to reach out to the entire community because they can ignore large portions of the community and still hold their base and just fight those battles when they get to Dal Air. Why, why I'm such a fan of this 
local government reform that effectively is embedded in the concept of the mayor. And ultimately, we'd love to see a mayor in Dublin and in Cork and in Washington, indeed in Longford and in Kerry and in Mayo. Um, it means that there are a number of people who might come from those political parties going into an election, but they have to reach out to the others. They have to reach out and understand the concerns of all of the community. As much as I described in Limerick, you couldn't just look at the concerns of the city and forget the county. If you want to get elected, you have to do both. And that, I think, will mean that when those negotiations that inevitably have to happen in terms of larger developments, or does the city move east or west or north or south or spread out or become compact growth, or how do we do transport to the communities? Or how do we have kids going to school? The mayor will be the person in the room who is not just representing 5% or 4% or 20% of the people, even if they are shouting loudest, that person will have to know that they represent the majority of the people of that locality and therefore find a compromise which actually manages to deal with everything. And everything is a compromise. And it's always, government is complicated. I mean, it's not simple. And you do have, as we said earlier, decisions to make relatively quickly and you're trying to, to gauge competing interests. And so there's no perfect right answer. But but I think it's important that the person feels responsible for finding the compromise on a personal basis that matches up to the overall community needs. Uh, a lot of this comes back to transparency. And I feel like that's almost taken us full circle in this conversation because you talked about the need for transparency for the government, whether it's local or centralised government to be transparent with the community, but to trust that the community will understand the message, not just jump to the to the most populist position, but will also understand that that also involves people taking personal responsibility, um, politicians and the community having to face difficult choices in terms of how they want to see their community grow, being welcoming of new people coming into the community. I mean, before we finish up, and I, I'm so grateful for you being so generous with your time, before we finish up, let's bring it back to Livable Limerick. I mean, what do you see is the future for Limerick over the next 20 years? Yeah, like I'm hugely positive about the future for, for Limerick and indeed our, our other regional cities, right? I I have a strong kind of, and in fact, the, the, the Southern Regional Assembly document got amended to do this. I have a strong view that we have to stop competing, other than in a slightly healthy way. Um, that we, the reality is that if we think of our country going forward, we're probably going to have a, an eastern seaboard, which is sort of Belfast to Dublin. And then we should have a cluster of the other cities from Galway, Limerick, Cork and Waterford all operating together. And if you do that, actually, you end up with two parts of the country, which have you know one and a half million, two million people. So they should have their own health systems that you shouldn't have to travel to the other one just because you're feeling like you're going to have a heart attack or you have to get treatment for, for cancer or whatever. We've reached a scale then where we can genuinely build up those two poles as as alternatives to each other and almost the cities in the in the western one become neighborhoods the same way as south county dublin or fingal are neighborhoods you decide to choose to live in 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 limerick or in watford or or cork or galway or whatever um but but if we get this right particularly post-covid which has shown that we can do technology like this i'm not i don't need to move to dublin to do this interview before we wouldn't have conceived of this being possible without doing that um I think that we can really develop our, our, our regional cities like Limerick. But to do so, we have to do it in a kind of a holistic way. And so I go back to, to what was done in Limerick in the, in the 19th century when they designed the Georgian Quarter. They moved ahead of the population growth. They designed out the city for being much more uh, large than it was at the time. And they didn't end up building it all out. That was fine because the population growth stopped. But it was planned, and that's actually why it's been so resilient since. And, and I think if we can do that the same, if we can try and find ways to, to plan these out properly, you know, I'll repeat my point, there are billions to be spent on that project, and it shouldn't be necessary to go crawling to Dublin every time you need five million to do so. There should be just a significant derogation of, of funding. But we should require the lads in Cork and you know the women in Galway or, or vice versa to sit with the, the, the mayor of Limerick so that she can actually say, I need to find a solution that works for everybody. Um, 
I, I, I think if we do that, look, Ireland is a great country, as we know. And, and in fact, it would be a very different problem that we'd be coping with if we were losing a million people in population rather than growing by a million people. And we need to remember that as a starting point. There are going to be some teething, but there are better ways to do it than I think we've been doing it in the past. We've now got to a point, hopefully it continues, of fiscal revenue that allows us to be more ambitious, I think, in terms of social housing, in terms of affordable housing programs that we do. I think Europe is, is moving towards an environment as well of realizing that it's not just Ireland that has a housing problem, that, that we have housing problems across a lot of European countries, and we need a different way to do that. And, and governments need to act in the same way as they did in the COVID crisis. And, 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 but the, we, it is really important that we don't just focus on the next five or 10 years. I mean, we have to sort of see ourselves, this housing crisis of 2021 will not be a housing crisis in 2071. I mean, if we have a housing crisis in 2071, it'll be a different one. And so, so we will get over these problems. If we do, if we do what we need to do, it's important that we we remember the strengths that we have as 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 a sort of community, and and build that trust. I mean, we're going back to trust each time here to to build that trust to create, and I would suppose this is slightly again controversial, but we have some countries in Europe, maybe even you know we've seen it in the US, getting a bit sort of close-minded about stuff in terms of pluralism, in terms of people coming to their communities, in terms of new people. You know, integrating in terms of diversity, I, I, that's not Ireland. It's certainly not the Ireland that I know. So I think if we can continue to be a beacon on those fronts as well, we will we will constantly be a magnet for talent and for really interesting sort of people to 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 want to live in Ireland and and indeed our own innovative, interesting and innovative kids to want to stay in Ireland. They can go away for a couple of years, like we all did, but but we want to create a world that they they feel comfortable coming back to. John, you're an inspiration. I could talk to you for hours. I, I really hope we get the opportunity to do this again and to see how um, the, the campaign in Limerick has moved on. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. That was John Morn of Livable Limerick. And that's it from us this week and indeed this year. So from January, we start into our fourth year of recording on Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. So as always, you can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. My thanks to to Peter Rice and Luke Delaney and of course Brian Fox um, and all the, the Property Matters team here for the work this year. We'll be back in January 2022. In the meantime, from all the team here, Merry Christmas and we look forward to seeing you all in the new year. Mm-hmm.